Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. It is being called the darkest day in Israel's history, and it's not over. Last Saturday morning, the Islamist militant group Hamas launched a shocking attack on Israeli towns. They infiltrated by land, sea, and air. Simultaneously, a barrage of rockets rained down, some of them breaching Israel's Iron Dome. As of this recording on Tuesday, October 10, more than 900 Israelis have been killed and more than 2,000 wounded. In response, Israel has ordered a siege of Gaza, the territory controlled by Hamas. Several hundred Palestinians have been killed. Worse is sure to follow. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says he expects a long and difficult fight. And while the country is uniting behind him for now, he has spent much of the year in crisis. He faces numerous corruption charges, there have been mass protests against him for months, and he runs a tenuous coalition that is considered the most far-right and religiously extreme in Israel's history. Now, Hamas says it has hundreds of Israeli hostages, including women, children, and the elderly. This is going to significantly complicate any response from Tel Aviv. And a new front looms. Hezbollah, the militant group, has been firing some rockets at Israel from the north. That could easily escalate. We have articles on all of this on our website. I urge you to read up. If you're not a subscriber, now is the time. If it's your first time with us, use the code FPLIVE when you check out for a one-off 50% discount. Now, so much is still developing in this story. I wanted to take a step back and speak with someone who had real historical perspective, an insider. So I called Aaron David Miller. In a long career at the State Department, he advised six Democratic and Republican secretaries of state on Middle East policy. He's authored several books and now writes frequently for FP. Let's dive in. Aaron, thank you so much for making time for us. Ravi, it's a pleasure. I love what you do and I love foreign policy. Uh, We're very grateful. So I've stated some of the things we know. There is a lot we don't know and tales of suffering are going to be told for a while. I think that's right. And at the outset, maybe I could just make a few brief points. Number one, Ravi, is humility. What we don't know at this point on so many of the issues is much, much more profound than what we actually do know. And as an analyst, um, I'm always aware of of trying to stay away from predictions based on opinion um, rather than on empirical data. The other point is the issue of humanity. Analysts tend to lose sight, particularly if you're not involved in actual conflict, uh, the, the basic impact that this these events in the Middle East have on human beings. 
the brutality and savagery of what Hamas has done, borrowing a page out of the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda, and the stories that are yet to be told um, about Israeli human suffering stand alone. It, they should not, however, crowd out the very reality that exists for Palestinians, suffering of Palestinians in Gaza and under Israeli occupation in large parts of the West Bank. And I, I think we need to keep both of these things in mind, however hard it is. Finally, in terms of predictions, you know, history bends in often cruel and very unpredictable ways. And I mentioned to Ravi earlier that in October 73, I was in Jerusalem hearing the sirens wail during the October uh, 73 Yom Kippur War. But within six years of that trauma, uh, Egypt and Israel signed a treaty of peace, one of the most consequential developments in the region. 20 years later, trauma then turned to hope. 20 years later, I sat on the White House lawn watching Arafat and Rabin and Clinton sign um, the Oslo Accords, convinced that we had reached a point of no return. In that case, hope turned to trauma. So I think we need to keep in mind the fact that the arc of history is a long one. It does bend in cruel, uh, unpredictable, and sometimes positive ways. I pose the question, which there's no answer and there's no point in having a conversation about it now. Is it conceivable or possible that these events could lead to a better future for Israelis and Palestinians? I really appreciate those opening thoughts, uh, Aaron. And again, it's such a privilege to draw on just the depth of your experience and history covering this issue and working towards peace. So uh, I also want to be clear, um, we have many subscribers who've written in with some terrific questions. So I'm going to channel some of them throughout this conversation. Let me just begin with this. I mean, how unprecedented is this attack? A lot of analysts have been calling it Israel's 9-11. Uh, again, uh, given your depth of history um, with the region, how are you seeing it? You know, historical al analogies can be very flawed, uh, particularly the comparative issue of what happens in the Middle East to our own politics our, and our own national security. You know, I, I guess I would use 1973 as a sort of um, point of departure. In, in some respects, 73 is a massive intelligence failure. We can talk about this based on an Israeli conception, what the Israelis call the conception, about their view of uh, Syria and Egypt as, as adversaries and their capacity, their incentive, their motive to attack Israel in a major war. Uh, but there, I think the analogies end. 73 is very much a war on the borders with little or no involvement of the civilian population. And Sudan had a clear strategy, a clear objective to inflict a limited, specific limited military defeat on Israel by establishing an Egyptian presence on the uh, east bank of the canal and then trying to figure a way to convert that with a lot of American help into disengagement agreements that would ultimately pave the way to, for Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty. This, however, what's happened over the last four days is quite different. It is part and parcel of a long confrontation between Israel and Hamas, unresolved. This might uh, include a inflection point or a transformation point. I don't like the word game changer. I'm not sure where this is going. But it, it's clear to me that you have the uh, largest 
attack on civilians in the history of the state of Israel. Uh, Hamas's strategy is certainly not as focused or as coherent, seems to me, as, as Sadat's. And I don't believe, again, then again, could this create a basis or a point of departure for American intervention? Kissinger's three disengagement agreements in 18 months between 1973 and 1975? I doubt it. So there are parallels and there are asymmetries, it seems to me. Um, mm. And a, and a good many unknowns, frankly, that um, are 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 basically quite extraordinary. Yeah, in the here and now, everyone, of course, is really worried about the hostages, which just dramatically complicate a potential response uh, on Israel's part. I understand they could be used as human shields. How are you thinking about the situation? How do you think the Israelis will be thinking about it? I mean, that's a fundamental difference, of course, uh, with 73. There were plenty of prisoners taken by the Syrians and the Egyptians. But this is a, another order of magnitude. You know, conceptually, I thought about this. 900 Israelis dead provide a basis for extraordinary anger, hatred, and a call for vengeance. But the 900 dead have to be weighed against uh, the reality of 150, by some accounts, maybe more, of the living. And that These I think the hostages. Yes, that I think is the constraint, the conundrum that the Israelis face. How to deal with the reality of the trauma of what has been done to Israeli civilians on one hand, uh, whose lives have been lost and many wounded whose lives have been shattered, with the reality of redeeming the living. And what sort of constraint does that impose? on Israeli policies, specifically on what Israeli plans are uh, for a large ground incursion, probably is not the right word. Uh, I suspect the Israelis have something much broader in mind, much more, much more comprehensive in mind. But that balance, I think, to some degree, has created tension and, to a degree, some indecision and paralysis on how to respond. The Israelis have responded with two of the sort of four sorts of, of tactical uh, actions. They've blockaded Gaza and they've conducted a series of punishing airstrikes. And what does that reflect? What is the purpose of those tactics with regard to either paving the way for a larger ground operation or trying to sort through some way to um, free hostages. That makes the situation seem seems to me unique. And the options, I, I think, are incredibly fraught. A military operation to seize 150 people, 100 of which Hamas controls, and again, according to reports, 30, that Palestine Islamic Jihad, whose tethering to Iran is in a way different than the relationship that exists between Hamas and Tehran, and what influence might Tehran have over uh, PIJ, Palestine Islamic Jihad, as pertains to those hostages? A negotiation? There's plenty of precedent for it. There are reports that the Qataris uh, are involved in trying to create, you'll see Melman and Haaretz had an article about a humanitarian corridor in which there would be a trade, women, children, the elderly, for Israel releasing women prisoners, 
uh, and those of uh, lower security threat. But then again, are the Israelis prepared to make this trade now? The issue of prisoner releases resonates deeply in the Palestinian street and would boost Hamas's prestige enormously. Are the Israelis ready and willing to pay that price now? So again, you know, more questions than answers and um, a lot of unknowns for us as analysts and uh, clearly for mm. the Israelis. I'm curious about how you're thinking about the state of readiness of Israel's military and intelligence uh, apparatus, because it just seems what happened was such a big intelligence failure. And there are reports of, you know, many Israeli forces that were on leave or distant from the southern border, uh, allowing Hamas to overrun Israeli military bases and towns near Gaza. How are you seeing all of that? It'll take months. Uh, and there will be a, a national commission of inquiry, as there was a, uh, in the wake of the 1973 war, the, the then Granat Commission, which held the security and intelligence elite responsible for the intelligence failure and um, relieved the uh, politicians, including the prime minister, of responsibility. The public would later impose that responsibility on Golda Meir and drove her from power within a year. This one, I think, and it'll take months to unpack and to create the tick-tock about what actually happened. This was an intelligence failure. It seems to be an operational failure as well. Hamas went dark. They've learned, I think, that the Israelis put an enormous amount of focus on SIGINT, signal intelligence, um, monitoring incredible penetration, uh, FAUDA, that extraordinary series reveals mm-hmm. the degree to which the Israelis have mastered technical superiority. But did the Israelis put too much emphasis on, on technical intelligence? Did they have, what about human? What about human intelligence? That was clearly an issue. But I think if I were to identify one flaw, one failing, it was the modern day version of the conception of the conception. The Israelis had a view uh, and completely misjudged Hamas's capabilities, its motives, its intentions, and I think were fooled, frankly, by the emphasis that Hamas appeared to place on governing in Gaza, dealing with the Qataris, who angered them by reducing the sub- monthly subsidies from 10 million uh, a month to 3 million. The Israelis at the time, because the prime minister is so anxious and eager for an Israeli-Saudi deal, wanted calm in Gaza, was prepared to release or allow more Palestinian workers into Israel. All of this put a put the major focus on Hamas as governing, not as Hamas as a as a force that could uh, pull off an operation like this, was which was extremely bold. And radical. So I think it was the failure to imagine and to underestimate, much as um, the Meir government did in 73, the potential and determination of their enemies, of their adversaries. On the operational side, it's going to take some serious explanation to try to determine why there were so few Israelis deployed in Gaza. It was uh, a Jewish holiday. There's talk of uh, 
redeployments from Gaza to the northern border. Clearly, the Israelis were more focused on the West Bank. They had come to accept a certain amount of complacency at the border. And I think Hamas did their homework. The weeks before, there were demonstrations on the borderline. They clearly did a reconnaissance to identify points of vulnerability. And when the attack actually came under the cover of rocket fire, within an hour, the Israelis estimate a thousand Hamas fighters crossed the border and were confronted by, without proper intelligence, by a poorly defended set of Israeli deployments, which were completely overwhelmed. So I think in in a way it was uh, a combination of Hamas learning from its mistakes, going dark, so to speak, and um, the Israelis simply not anticipating. So if in fact you're an Israeli soldier in Gaza and you're confronted with a rush of, of a, a thousand Hamas fighters within an hour, I think the results are, are going to be pretty predictable. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website. That is foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine, of course. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Center for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes, or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. How likely is it that Hezbollah might join in uh, in this war? Um, because I feel like of all the things that the scenarios that we're going to be playing out over the next week or two, that is the one that could dramatically escalate things. The opening of the Northern Front would do that, given the incredible superiority, both in tactics training and the repository of high trajectory weapons. Hezbollah has accumulated since 06, which I'll remind everyone, including myself, that uh, a group of, uh, of, of militia, Lebanese militia, a political organization, an organization that is capable and has carried out terror attacks in the past, shut down the northern half of region's most preeminent military power for 30 days. And that was in 06. Uh, 17 years later, their uh, repository of high-trajectory weapons have, have increased in range and lethality. So I think the opening of the Northern Front would present the Israelis with a, a not simply attack problem, with a strategic one. Hezbollah's calculations, I think, are somewhat opaque, uh, to say the least. I think they're torn uh, by 
their own awareness of the implications for Hezbollah as a Lebanese organization. And Hezbollah is a Lebanese organization. It's not a wholly owned subsidiary of Tehran and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, despite the incredibly close relations between the two and the support that Hezbollah has provided for Iran and Iran for Hezbollah. That's a calculation, I think, that um, Hezbollah has yet to make. There's growing tensions on the border. The Israelis intercepted an armed squad, uh, I think killed two or three. One returned to Lebanon. There have been uh, a series of mortar exchanges, uh, Israeli helicopter attacks, some artillery firing into northern Israel. It's a wait-and-see operation at this point, uh, Ravi. I think that uh, Hezbollah's response is going to depend on what the Israelis do Mm. with respect to Gaza. Mm. Hezbollah stay out of a massive Israeli uh, ground operation that goes qualitatively and quantitatively broader and deeper into Gaza than anything we've seen in any of the previous operations, cast lead, pillar of fire, guardian of the walls. These high-trajectory rocket exchanges and air and artillery strikes with the Israelis, I'm not sure Hezbollah could stay out. I also worry about two other things. The West Bank, which has remained remarkably quiescent, and Jerusalem. Hamas has dubbed this the Al-Aqsa flood, putting front and center because it serves and resonates deeply with Palestinians, not just in the West Bank, but Palestinian citizens of Israel as well. So I fear and worry that we are still very much, uh, it's early days. And in the days and weeks ahead, I think we'll get answers to both the questions of additional challenges from Palestinians in the West Bank, a northern front, and the ever-present problem of settler, Israeli settler vigilantism, which I worry about greatly, Mm. particularly in response to the anger of uh, Israelis for what has occurred in the South. And again, uh, once the Israeli military uh, consolidates control, there are still Hamas fighters operating uh, in that area. And, uh, but once the Israelis reestablish control, the stories that are going to be told and emerge from events of the initial three days are going to further, I think, anger and stir up hatreds that could easily uh, produce a response by uh, particularly by Israeli settlers. I I should add that this was a military operation, to be sure, well-coordinated and um, carried out with great precision by Hamas. But it was also, and let's be clear, a major terrorist operation as well. I'm still to some degree, and I have no uh, doubt about Hamas's capacity for brutality, still in a way stunned by the ISIS-like, Al-Qaeda-like behavior. I mean, some will argue, come on, you know, wake up and smell the coffee. This is who Hamas is. This is what they do. But it's still to me stunning and quite extraordinary, the level of brutality and savagery 
So Aaron, if I may, let's uh, on that just zoom out a little bit more uh, and add one more complicating factor to the mix. And that is Iran, which there are some sort of schools of thought that go that Iran helped uh, Hamas plan this attack. Hamas itself has gone on the BBC and said they received help from Tehran. The State Department, however, has said that they haven't yet seen a smoking gun. Uh, They're trying to be a lot more cautious about making that connection. Iran, of course, backs Hezbollah. How do you think Tehran is watching what's going on? And at what point do you think they might begin to play a more active public role? Look, for the Iranians... Uh, the Arab-Israeli issue, Israeli-Palestinian issue, Israel-Hezbollah is a window through which they can uh, project their influence and power and take advantage of proxies to further Iranian interests. I'm not sure the the full story uh, has yet been told on the degree of coordination or lack thereof, frankly, between Tehran and Hamas. The Wall Street Journal had a fascinating report. I'm not entirely persuaded by the sources. Some of the Israeli former intelligence people that I've spoken to argue that this is not, um, uh, Iran is not operating uh, Hamas by remote control. Yes, there was coordination. There were meetings probably uh, by Hamas's external leadership in Beirut with IRGC elements, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps elements. I'm sure the Iranians provided and they do provide more than 100 million a year to Hamas and lesser amounts to Palestine, Islamic Jihad. And I think Hamas and Iranian objectives on several issues probably coincided. I'm just not yet ready to buy the notion that this is Tehran operating Hamas by remote control. I mean, after all, who knows the border fence area better than Hamas? Nobody. And yes, the IRGC could uh, have instructed Hamas in tactics and supplied weapons and the like. But part of Hamas going dark meant that Hamas needed to restrict the circle of who knew about this operation Mm -hmm. and what they were planning. And it would just seem to me that adding the Iranians to the mix, uh, particularly given the given the fact that American intelligence and Israeli intelligence have their own sources and their own monitoring capacities, that you just open up the circle to intelligence penetration by bringing a lot of other humans into this process. So I've yet to be persuaded on this particular operation that this was planned, directed, orchestrated by Tehran. I will say, add on the issue of Israel and Saudi Arabia that I think Hamas and Iranian objectives coincided on that. I do believe that Hamas's central objective was to, I mean, in addition to hostages to be traded for prisoners and to inflict a level of pain uh, and terror to disrupt Israeli normalcy in a way no other Palestinian group has ever done in the decades of engagement even during the early 70s, and the air, airline hijackings, nothing compares to what Hamas has done now. They have fundamentally disrupted a government's contract with its people. That is to say, the confidence that, that people living in a government have in the government's capacity to protect them. 
to redeem them, to rescue them. This was a, a huge, it seems to me, um, motivation on the part of Hamas, as well as to reaffirm the centrality of the Palestinian issue in the minds of the region. No bypasses here, no bypass roads. Israeli-Saudi normalization, you think you can pull it off? Remember, we're here. And also to demonstrate Hamas's central role in the Palestinian national movement. You want your hostages back, you deal with Hamas, not, not Abbas. You want quiet on your border, you deal with uh, Hamas, not Abbas. And I, and I think that, at least over the short term, uh, Hamas's prestige and status in those two areas, I think, have accomplished. The, the leverage that any administration has now over this Israeli government, or frankly, regardless of who was prime minister, the leverage to push the Israelis to make concessions when it comes to brokering Israeli-Saudi normalization process, I think have been reduced, frankly, to an optical zero wow. as a consequence of this. So on that, I was going to zoom out a little bit further now and ask you about America's role. I mean, you have advised so many uh, U.S. administrations now on this very issue. What would you advise them today? How should they think about this? How should they react? Well, let me first start with tethering myself to the reality uh, of the what's more likely rather than what should happen. I'm very conscious, having left government, that it's easy to deal in the should category. And I'm, I'm reminded constantly that where you stand is where you sit, okay? And there are huge problems with that in terms of honesty and clarity of both analysis and policy. I've tried over the last 23 years since leaving government to basically create more honesty and clarity to learn from what we've done right and to learn from what we've done wrong. I think that's critically important. I'll just give you my sense of the Biden administration. I'll frame it as three concepts, all beginning with the letter P. First is the president's persona. The presidential model here to understand is not Barack Obama. It's Bill Clinton. Hmm. Joe Biden and Clinton, even though they are uh, a part of a, a part of a different different generations, when it comes to Israel, have very, very similar views. Love of Israel, support for Israel's security, support for the idea of Israel is deeply buried in Clinton's and Joe Biden's emotional and political DNA. He watched his former boss deal with Netanyahu, and he was not convinced that Obama's tactics and strategies were correct. And uh, the idea that you're going to get this president at this time um, involved in a way that crosses Israeli lines, particularly now, I think highly unlikely. Second is politics. The Republican Party, and again, I voted for Republicans and Democrats and worked for Republicans and Democrats. You can take this as a partisan comment or not. Republican Party has emerged as the go-to party on Israel. It is the Israel right or wrong party. And while what happens in Israel is not going to affect the minds of probably a single, well, I won't say a single, a single U.S. voter. It will not play a major role in this campaign. The reality is that this administration cannot afford 
to allow the Republicans to paint it as being hostile or adversarial to Israel. And that's and it brings us to the third P, which is policy. There are two issues out there between now and 2024, certainly before this crisis broke, that um, the administration needs to figure out a way to manage. One is a crisis, what to do about uh, Iran's nuclear program. And the other is an opportunity, how to deal with the possibility of Israeli-Saudi normalization, which the administration is very, very interested in. The reality is this administration, well, the reality is that Benjamin Netanyahu sits at the center of both of these, both of this crisis and both of this uh, this opportunity. For all three of these reasons, it seems to me, the, the administration has made a strategic decision to give the Israelis the time and space and the support to do what they're going to do. What that is, is unclear. Would the administration at some point during the course of an Israeli operations, as they did in 2021 during Operation Guardian of the Walls, seek to constrain the Israelis, press them to uh, defuse and to desist? Maybe. But right now, it's been the pattern of so many administrations. Fighting with an Israeli prime minister publicly is awkward, it's messy, it's distracting. And it could be potentially politically costly. All you need to do, uh, Ravi, is look at the last 10 months of the way in which the administration has engaged with the most right-wing extremist fundamentalist government in the history of the state of Israel. To me, it's understandable, but still quite remarkable. I have never seen an administration, six or seven I worked for, engage with any Israeli government with the frequency and at the senior level as this administration has engaged with Netanyahu. The president has been to Israel. The secretary of state has been to Israel. Jake Sullivan has been to Israel. Bill Burns has been to Israel. Mark Milley has been to Israel. Lloyd Austin has been to Israel. And that doesn't even count the numbers of meetings of Israelis here in Washington. And yes, the administration is annoyed, frustrated with Benjamin Netanyahu, but unable and or unwilling to impose for any number of reasons, the reasons I think I've identified, the three Ps, if you will, unwilling or unable to impose any serious cost on Israel. And okay. if they were unable and unwilling to do it before October 7, they are certainly unwilling and unable to do it now. Well, let me add another P to that then, uh, Aaron, and that is uh, Palestinian debts. Um, how do you see U.S. support evolving as people continue to die in Gaza and likely on other fronts, how do you imagine that plays out in the White House when there might be more a different kind of public pressure as the story kind of evolves over the next couple of weeks? I think that's it, well, it's an easy question to answer. It's unsatisfactory uh, and emotionally unsatisfying and perhaps morally and ethically flat out wrong. But in the wake of October 7, I think the administration has already built in to its calculations the possibility that what you're going to see in Gaza will go beyond anything that the Israelis have done in the past. How they're going to respond to that, I mean, the default position, it seems to me, as it's been for many, many years, is to value 
or at least emphasize the importance of Israeli security. Rhetorical support, but I've seen not a single indication. Uh, you look at the president's statement and his public remarks in the wake of October 7th, there was no mention of restraint, no mention of calm, no mention of finding a way to diffuse in an effort to create a political pathway forward. And I suspect that as the stories of what happened in the South are uh, continue to come out, that the administration is going to be in an impossible position. The Republican Party is basically going to adopt the view that it is Israel right or wrong. The Democratic Party is divided. You have a smaller group of progressives who are willing to speak out and speak out loudly and to call for the imposition of costs and consequences for Israeli behavior. The vast majority of the Democratic Party, even though there are members in both houses that have spoken out and criticized Israel, I think will find themselves under great pressure not to. And the administration will be caught navigating the line between a Republican Party that wants them to blindly support Israel and a divided Democratic Party, some of which is wants them to impose accountability and costs on Israel. It is obviously in the administration's interest to bring whatever is coming to an end as quickly as possible. I think we're in a period in which American influence and leverage already constrained is going to be hard pressed, despite the presence of the fact that nine Americans have reportedly been killed. There may be Americans, there probably are Americans that are dual nationals that have been taken hostage. I think the the administration, at least for now, is going to follow Israel's lead and probably the uh, the traditional expression of not allowing much daylight to emerge between Israel and the United States is probably the rule of the day. If there's a national unity government, I think the tendency to preempt tensions between Washington and Jerusalem is probably going to grow strong. Mm. You know, Aaron, I've been saying this elsewhere, but uh, one of the uh, problems, I think, with invoking 9-11 is that 9-11 is such a complicated thing that was one event, of course, but led to a 20-year war on terror. And so when we invoke 9-11, there's also the response. Um, that is something that will play out in the coming weeks. But, you know, I want to ask you about one other aspect of all of this. We've talked about the failure of intelligence. We've talked about the failure of imagination, even. How much of this is a failure of diplomacy um, that brought us to this point? And you began this conversation by talking about, you know, moments of crisis that can change the arc of history. You've talked about trauma turning to hope and hope to trauma. How do you see the possibility of a peace process emerging from uh, the rule uh, that this attack and the next few weeks will give us? You know, I have two, two grown children in their 40s. I occupy a tiny space on this planet for a very short period of time. It's morally or ethically unconscionable for me to say never, to think never, and essentially to abandon all hope that any crisis, no matter how 
how hot, uh, irrepressible, violent, bloody uh, might not over time offer up a pathway out. Right now, Israelis and Palestinians are trapped in a strategic cul-de-sac. They've been trapped there, frankly, since, in my judgment, since our effort during the Clinton administration to bring Arafat, Barack, and Clinton together at Camp David. In my judgment, I helped plan that. Ill-advised, ill-conceived, and ill-timed, despite the, I think, the profoundly good intentions of Bill Clinton, who may have loved Israelis and Palestinians too much. Um, however this ends, the four missing ingredients, in my judgment, I've been annoyingly negative in preaching this now for 20 years since leaving government. The four missing ingredients that are required to create a negotiation that would end to end in a durable and equitable solution for Israelis and Palestinians have never been present. They're not present now. And given what you and I know, we're not dealing with a galaxy far, far away. We're dealing here with life on planet Earth are not likely to be present going forward in the immediate future. But the four remain critically important. One, leaders who are masters, not prisoners of their ideologies and their politics. Critically important any time there was progress in this conflict, whether it was Sadat Begin, Rabin Arafat, Rabin Hussein, you needed that. I'm talking about, I'm not talking about the Abraham Accords now. I'm talking about conflict zone uh, requirements and conflicts, conflicts that have been bathed in blood and trauma and historical wounding. You need leaders, big leaders. We don't have them. Number two, you need a sense of, you need leadership. You also need a sense of ownership. That famous expression in the history of the world, nobody ever washed a rental car, is a profound piece of personal philosophy. People don't wash rental cars because they care only about what they own. And most every negotiation was preceded without the participation of the United States, whether it was Egypt-Israel, Israel-Jordan for decades, and certainly Oslo in its initial stages. You don't have that sense of ownership now. Ownership is driven by pain, Ravi, and it's driven by the prospects of gain. Could this conflict produce both? Because both, both, I suspect, are necessary to create the kind of urgency that's required. Three, you need effective mediation, if not by the United States, and I still believe despite our transgressions, our flaws, uh, our biases, uh, our preferential treatments of one side rather than the other, we still have potentially the will and the skill to do this, but the will is extremely important. You're gonna have to apply a lot of honey both on the negotiating table and in terms of off the table benefits, but you also are gonna to need to apply a lot of vinegar at moments when parties need to be pushed and pressed to make decisions. And finally, you need an end state that both Israelis and Palestinians can agree on. I know what the conventional wisdom is. The two-state solution has gone the way of the dodo. It's virtually impossible to resurrect it, but I would still submit to you and I, 
maybe I'm going the way of the dodo as well, that separation through negotiation is the only solution, the only one that will address the demographic, political, psychological, historical problem of overlapping sacred space that exists in Jerusalem on the uh, Haram Sharif Harabait, the Temple Mount. The only solution that can address all of that is something, call it a confederation, call it two states, separation through negotiation, two polities willing to live with one another in peace and security. I know that seems galactically impossible right now, and it is, but that's what's required. And I think we need to look honestly, honestly, and clearly, especially at the, at the U.S. role, which I've done a lot of thinking about when it comes to this particular question. Well, uh, on that note, Aaron David Miller, I could praise you for the depth of your analysis, but I'm going to say what stands out to me is your humanity and humility as you cover this issue and enlighten us with your analysis. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. Robbie, thanks to you. Thanks to you and foreign policy. And and to me, your comment means a great deal. I, I really appreciate it. And that was Aaron David Miller, a longtime U.S. State Department advisor to secretaries of state from both the Democratic and the Republican side. Remember, you can take a look at who we have coming up next on our website, foreignpolicy.com live. That is it for this week. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time. I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. 
and will need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. 